And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 103 today. We're going to be talking about ancient aliens and Gnosticism. We'll also be discussing all the recent UFO stuff with our guest, Bruce Fenton. Uh, Bruce has been on our show before. Uh, we discussed his Into Africa theory and book. So he is the author of Into Africa. Uh, he's the co-author of Human Hybrids, and he has a new book coming up called Exogenesis. We'll have all the links below. And, um, yeah, that's go- that's it. What's going on, Bruce? How are you? Glad to have you back. I'm doing very well. Yeah, thank you very much for having me back on. I hope, oh, of course. Um, hope 2020 has started well for you both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So far, so good. Not not being abducted and probed yet. There's still time. There's still time. <laughs> yeah, yet, you know, yeah. there's still a long year before that ends. So hopefully we can get that going. You know, <laughs> I was um, I was gonna let's start off with this though. I wanted to discuss all the recent stuff um, going on on UFO Twitter, if you will. Um, yeah, there was all that uh, back and forth. So there's an author of the book uh, American cosmic and that's um is it uh dr pasalka is that how you pronounce it yeah diana pasalka and um i was just watching this thing go down and supposedly her account got hacked um Mm -hmm. and she was saying all the stuff about to the stars academy like very critical stuff and um she kept dming people too saying that this isn't a hack this is really me um, and then a day later, she releases a statement saying that she was hacked and that, who, you know, so I guess my point is whoever hacked her has intimate knowledge of the UFO community. So what do you sure. think was going on? Do you think it was her and she's just saying that now because she regrets possibly being in a certain mood at the time or whatever the case may be? Or do you think that somebody really did get in there? But well, there's, there's a history there that, you know, she'd previously been hacked uh, in fact, she's been warned by people. She had credible threats from the intelligence community that she should stay off of social media. Um, friends of hers had warned her to heed that and to stay off of social media. And so she obviously went ahead and opened an account. Then she was hacked on that account, had problems. She left social media. Uh, and then she, when she returned, this has happened. So there, there is that greater context to this. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the, in the course of her research, she was interacting with people that do have clearances. And that's why these credible threats came about. But there were some concerns that she may know things that shouldn't be shared in public. So, I mean, people should take that on board firstly, you know, that there's a history there and a reason for why someone might hack her and want to make her look you know, a bit zany. Uh, But also it's it's quite clear to me that, and she does admit this, you know, that some of these things have come out of her, you know, her accounts that, you know, there are opinions in there that she has, which are critical of TTSA, you know, so it's not totally made up. Well, that's, that's, that's what the confusing thing for me was, is because some of the tweets that she was supposedly hacked during were consistent with other stuff that, you know, she released the day, that she said she was hacked. She was posting stuff before that that I had like commented on something about um, 
you know, how the philosophy community is eating itself or something along those lines. And I commented, yeah, along with every other subject on, in, on man or having to do with mankind now with the Internet and stuff. So, um, well, yeah, it's happening. But then well, I, I thought, to be honest, it's a kind of a meditation on ufology and other subjects in, in general, you know, because there's one of the people knows there's the tendency, you know, is it really her? Is it not? And then it's it was her. No, it's not. It's her. It's not. And I think that we have to remember sometimes that the human mind loves certainty mm. and that we're in uncertain topics where sometimes you just got to say, you know what? I don't know. Right. So I'll take it as it, you know, the cat's both dead and alive. Right. And yeah. Schrodinger's. Um, yeah. And I, I think that sometimes you have to just accept that we don't know because we don't directly see what's happening with someone. So I'm willing to sort of understand that some people will see it as that, yes, it's her and some will say it's not. I would say the benefit of the doubt because of the history of the person, you know, and her, her experience with being hacked before. Right. Um, but I admit that, you know, I couldn't prove it either way, you know? Sure. Now, again, I, th I find all that interesting. I, I actually haven't read the book yet. I have it loaded up on my audible, ready to go. Um, or my, uh, loaded. my Kindle. But uh, my question to you is, have, actually, have you read it? And if so, what do you mm -hmm. think about that side of things? Because it has a lot of religious connotations and um, that kind of stuff, that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have read the book. And, yeah, it does tackle the, the intrinsic links, really, in ufology to spiritual and religious you know, subjects. Obviously, the church has, you know, interest in anomalous aerial phenomena. You know, there's a history, particularly, you know, the Catholic Church, but really all Christianity. And in fact, you could say um, all major faith groups have some interest in anomalous aerial phenomena, because if you look at, you know, the the, the fundamental books, these ways, the Bible or, you know, um, the Torah and so on, there's obviously there's phenomena that people see in the air. Right. Whether we call them angels or or strange clouds or, you know, that there's clearly that's part of their narrative. So there's no way to completely detach major religious you know branches away from anomalous era phenomena. Yeah, today people will think of them as often as craft and technological concerns. But if you look at the broader history, you think, well, hang on a minute. That's that's kind of simplistic because, you know, even the phenomena people are seeing often it morphs, you know, you have objects that change from glowing spheres that seem to change into craft or even into beings, you know, so that really crosses over into the kind of phenomena that leads to religions, mm -hmm. right? That the, people try and put an understanding of what am I seeing as a glowing orb? It's communicating with me, it's shifting into other things, you know, this is either God or a messenger of the gods, right? Mm -hmm. So we can understand why the Vatican and other, you know, major, you know, religious groups would have these interests and that's why the book sort of delves into that and particularly in the you know the catholic link there but i, I would yeah. imagine that you yeah. know, the church of england and you know like mormonism right there's phenomena in there that connects with aliens and stuff you've got you know the handy over the first doctrines of mormonism sound like an alien contact mm. um other people say that's an angel you know so what is an angel what is an alien you know there's there's right. a lot of uh there's a lot of muddy water in there, right? Exactly. Yeah, one more thing I just want to touch on and we'll move on from this. But she that's you mentioned the Vatican. She did one of the tweets from supposedly when she was hacked talks about how she had access to all these Va Vatican documents and how Tom DeLong and in, in TS TTSA will never have access to it or something along those lines. You know, what do, mm -hmm. what do you make of that? Do you think it's just again part of the hack or do you think that 
there's some truth to that that the Vatican probably does have some I mean I, I we all know that they have secretive stuff in there but do you think yeah. that they do have stuff relating to extraterrestrials or do you think that that's all just um, nonsense well I would imagine they certainly have a lot of information there that relates to anomalous aerial phenomena now whether whether or not they specifically refer to aliens you know possibly but they're, they're going to have troves of information they've gathered from around the world you know from cultures that they annexed or pillaged right so you've got documents from older traditions that have been you know brought back to to their libraries or have cop copies of you know older texts and scriptures and stuff so they're going to have a lot of that information in there i think that's a given in terms of the tweets that we saw i think that you know a hacker could infer some of this because look if you know that tom DeLong is a mason certainly the masonic symbolism is there with his music and his work and it's on his guitar and so, so we know that historically look there is a there is certainly an issue between the vatican and masonry so i don't think it would take someone enormous you know brain power to figure that the vatican might have an issue with bringing tom in to a really deep level when he's portraying himself with masonic symbolism right because you know there's been several you know, papal bulls against you know against against uh, having masons in the church and whatnot so I think you could sort of put that together, but that could have been in her emails as well. There may have been a discussion in there somewhere saying that, you know, that the church is not going to accept him because of his masonry. So, you know, I think you could that could be inferred or it could have been in her emails. But there's also some truth in it. You know, I imagine that there is some discomfort, you know, in terms of you know, senior Vatican figures, if they think they're dealing with someone who may be a high level mason. You know, to what degree will they bring them in as an insider? You know, I, I'm not sure. Sure. Well, I mean, that makes sense because I would assume if they want whatever they have out there that they would want it to be one of their own or somebody that mm -hmm. has connections to them. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, all right. So, yeah. So moving on, the first time we had you on, we discussed your first book, Into Africa, your theory about, um, you know, mm -hmm. the migration into Africa from Australia, mm -hmm. Pithecus and all and all those early hominids. Um, mm hmm. And then we also discussed your book, um, Human Hybrids, where you and your wife wrote about your experiences and some of the evidence that you found uh, suggesting that there was an event roughly seven, uh, 780,000 years ago or 800,000 years ago. And then, mm -hmm. lo and behold, this last week they released an article talking about how they know for a fact there was a large meteorite uh, that hit Earth yeah. roughly 800,000 years ago. So uh, do you correlate those two things, or what do you think's going on there? Yeah, I absolutely do. And it's it's, it's kind of a bit mind-bending that this has come up, considering that well, this is a 100-year-long mystery in science that there was this event, you know, roughly 780-ish thousand years ago um, with this australite tectite material covering 10 to 30% of the world's surface. You know, and, and trying to understand, you know, how this happened, it's one of the major points. But but also, of course, there was an assumption that there must be an impact and that therefore a crater, and they couldn't find it. So that was also part of the mystery. Now, it's kind of funny that, you know, having had my book, my, obviously Hybrid Humans came out last year, which tackled this topic. And obviously the new book comes out, which does more on that. That in the middle, we have this big story, you know, that goes viral on this topic. And quite honestly, I don't think, I doubt many people had even heard of these events, you know, that until I kind of published the book last year, you know, I hadn't looked until I got delved into this kind of topic. I'd never heard of these events, you know, 780,000 years ago. They're not very well known. So 
there's a little bit of me that's a bit sort of surprised at the correlation that, you know, in the middle of promoting my work, which centers on these events, that a big news story breaks, you know, absolutely tackling the topic. Now, I don't necessarily agree with some of the um, the conclusions in the paper that's just been published. Now, I don't know if anyone has read the paper. Certainly, they would have seen the articles out there. You know, it's been, it's been fairly viral, hasn't it? I mean, I think pretty much every news agency has covered the basic story that, you know, a crater has been detected in Laos. Uh, they haven't directly seen this crater because it's underneath a lava field. So it's inferred. It needs to be proven. Um, but one of the one of the issues I take with this is it, it seems that the scientists involved don't really know all the details of the Australite tektite mystery because you can't really explain it away so simply as saying, well, look, we found this crater in Laos. You know, there's large pieces of tektite in Laos. You know, this this must be the the impact site. You know, we found it. You know, hooray! Mm-hmm. That'd be very simplistic. Except when you start to look a bit deeper, you realise that there's NASA papers, right, going back, you know, quite a few years, in which they say that this material has formed in space in an in an explosion of an object orbiting the planet. And in fact, this is this is very solid because what you find is that these tektite spherules, which are like droplets of liquid glass that formed in space that as they formed they trapped hard vacuum and so you find bubbles of this hard vacuum in the material mm-hmm. right so also the the shaping of the Australite tektite buttons which have a, almost like the front of a bullet you know you get this these are aerodynamic sh- shaping that you can see you know it's passed through the atmosphere and it's formed these nose cone kind of shapes in fact that was one of the interests nasa had in it you know they can see it kind of meshed with the shape of a, of a re-entry vehicle right if you take those things into account, then it doesn't seem that an impact has caused this because how does the impact throw this material from Laos, right, up into space where it rains down across, basically only South Australia has the tektite buttons. Right? It's a long way for it to go for mm-hmm. a start. But also you have a second problem there, that even if you're able to throw material into space, as this liquid glass is you know, thrown through the, the atmosphere, it's cooling yeah so it by the time it reaches space it's already significantly cooled how is it going to trap hard vacuum yeah so this doesn't stack up and my suspicion is that the team involved are not really fully aware of the greater story of the events 780,000 years ago and that's that's just part of my criticism another, another sure. part is that there are multiple impacts at that same time so there's no reason why this can't be one of those but it doesn't necessarily need to be the the causal site for the production of australites. No, I mean that Crazy. yeah, that 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 actually makes a lot of sense and it like I said before, I mean you and others have had pretty good success even though it's on the fringe or people don't want to give it credit or whatever the case may be of mm-hmm. determining some of these timelines. Now, um mm-hmm. when you look at all the evidence and everything that you've researched and compiled and everything like that do you do do you ever go back and say oh i got this wrong because of this or do you ever look back and and think that possibly you misinterpreted something or is it just something where you just keep it moving or how how does that work with you sure on yeah on both the inter africa you know and on the new books yeah i I do i keep an eye out to see what comes out and i was quite surprised you know with um the inter-africa work that within a few months of that stories began breaking that were hyper relevant you know there was there was a story that came out about um did homo erectus sail through indonesia and could could they speak 
you know, and that is in my book, you know, and I discussed that right. I think the fundraisers must have been able to speak to organize a journey through the islands. That how do you get right, a group of um, people to basically go with you out into the open ocean, right, which is obviously intrinsically a, a scary alien environment for these people if you can't communicate the idea to them that no you know we can be safe you know we're going to boat there's an island you know that there has to be a way to motivate a group of people to work together to cross that sea now i don't think you can do that by flapping your arms in the air and just escalating you know out to sea so we've got clues there that they could they could speak but the the funny thing was to see that kind of come out soon afterwards and then also we had the Denisovan revelations that, you know, a number of scientists moved to the position that Denisovans, it seemed they probably were living in Australia, right? And in, in basically up in the islands of Indonesia, which is what fundamentally I'd argued a whole chapter on that being the homeland of Denisovans. And nobody was saying that at the time. But now that has become a, a fairly well accepted, you know, speculation, at least in mainstream science. In terms of things that have gone a, a little bit, to the negative, then I would say there's any points I would revise when your new finds have come out and I would have added those in and they would have, if anything, strengthened my arguments. Um, I think possibly the first chapter of the book is where I would say that I would I would revise the most. And that's because I, I kind of argued that should we incorporate the early Australopithecines into the greater kind of homo genus and, and I, I would say no now because I, a lot of that was an argument to do with the tool use but we now know that even you know primates today are using some simple stone tools right mm -hmm. so so and I would, they're learning I would say, have you seen that video of the orangutan that mm. learns how to spearfish from the yep. the indigenous people yeah. yeah yeah so I'm more cautious about that now I would definitely if anything else I would be shaving off probably um, hominins rather than adding them on you know looking at that now gotcha um I would say that probably our story starts with with, with the hominins living about sort of 2.8 million years ago-ish around then. I, I wouldn't incorporate anything earlier than that into the homo kind of story. So that that's probably an area, yeah, I would admit that, you know, I got that a bit wrong. Um, in the, and in the, the newer work, obviously with this news that came out, I had to stop and think, you know, when I saw it, there was a little bit of me like nervous. I was thinking, <laughs> oh, you know, have I made a big error here somewhere? So I went through the paper, um, in, you know, in detail to make sure that I understood fully what they had found, what they were saying, whether how it would impact my own positions. And so it was interesting to find that they hadn't really taken into account a lot of this, you know, information about the Australite formation. And they didn't seem to be aware of the other impacts, you know, at the time. So, so yeah, in the end, I don't feel it modifies my work particularly but i am open to the possibility that what we have here is a genuine you know a genuine impact site and it could be related to the source body because you know if you've got a large object that's exploded in space it's showering down with debris right so mm -hmm. there is a chance that a large chunk did come down from that and here in laos so you've got about three different possibilities there you know that this could be part of that story or it could be a separate impactor another asteroid or whatever because there's about six or seven impacts in that period right mm -hmm. so so we've already got a few asteroids that have hit so it could be one of those or third is that there simply is no crater there because they have not proven it as yet and a number of scientists have pointed this out that you know it's inferred you know, there's an anomaly, um, but until they really drill, you know, do some more investigation, it's not a case closed. They've actually found an asteroid impact site. Right. And there's other ones, too. I mean, they're trying to get to Hiawatha and um, 
uh, Greenland to kind of prove the younger Dryas, or they're hoping that it fits that timeline. Um, yep. And I know that there's another one over there as well, too, that they're trying to get to, which even further backs up all the Graham Hancock, George Howard, all those guys work with the uh, younger Dryas um, impact hypothesis. Now, mm-hmm. yep. when you look at um, that, so that's a lot sooner of, uh, on the timeline of civilization than what you're talking about. You're still talking about early and pre-humans. When you look at mm-hmm. the younger Dryas stuff, do you think that there's some weird stuff going on there too, or do you think it's completely separate from your 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 work that you know that you've done with the uh, the timelines? Well, it, it may not be completely separate. And the reason I have to stay open-minded to that is because you know one of the um, I should say is an argument I made, but something I discuss is that there is a suggestion that the impacts seven hundred eighty thousand years ago are not natural. That, you know, first of all, that you have what I argue is a AI craft, you know, breaking up in orbit, but that five years later, this is followed by a deliberate bombardment of the planet, which involves a number of objects being propelled down to the surface. Right. So if that is the case, you know, and if that stands up to any scrutiny, um, then could not an intelligence out there do this whenever it wants, that it could propel an object down and cause another cataclysm, which is. Is what we're often told in these ancient texts, isn't it? That you know that the gods have become angry and that they send a, a cataclysm upon the world. Right. right. So, so if this is potentially true that there's an intelligence that every now and again decides to do a reboot on our planet, then it could be that the events of the Younger Dryas are one of these. That there is a you know a wiping away of a culture. And I know that ties in with stories of Atlantis, you know, and this. A supposedly fallen society, you know, getting the punishment of the gods and whatnot. I don't know that's the case, but that would be where I'd say there could be a link right. between the two. And we just talked that's about on the last episode panspermia yep, yep. and um, directed panspermia, mm-hmm. and there's like a bunch of different versions of panspermia. Um, why not in that case? You know, we don't mm-hmm. know exactly how life arose. Um, anybody that says they know for sure is crazy. Um, mm-hmm. most academics yeah. would suggest abiogenesis of some sort, maybe timelines differ, maybe mm-hmm. different, uh, conditions differ. Uh, but when you look at panspermia, it's, it, it passes the, the, the burden of proof over to, well, it came from mm-hmm. somewhere else. Um, so you're not really answering the question, but at the same time, it would explain maybe we, we were, maybe we're too young in our evolution to even understand completely so maybe mm-hmm. that's something that we entertain and look at more closely because yeah. if there is some sort of if life does exist and everything's being seeded constantly maybe the habitable planets and the habitable zones are, are filled with life that we just have not found yet um so i definitely think Which that we are finding more stuff out in space right. i know we've discovered some and we're sending stuff out there there's tons of tardigrades right. just living you know, on the, the moon, moon. <laughs> flopping around, you know, yeah. you know how um, they do. And actually, so we, we talked about that, too. I don't know if you read this article, but they mm-hmm. discovered how tardigrades survive all these crazy conditions. And it's that they they dry out and become almost like a uh, they go, go into like a proxy state. And the second that they're introduced to like water moisture again, they they come back out. So I think mm-hmm. that's that's almost mm-hmm. like alien technology in a, in a way. So. Well, I tend to think of DNA as an alien technology myself. 
That's one, true, of the, sure. one of the really the fundamental issues here, you know, which affects everything, is look, either there's an alien intelligence operating in our solar system that is not us and that has been there, you know, for however long, let's say from the beginning, obviously makes the most sense. Um, or there isn't. Right. If there isn't, then you have to default to like abiogenesis, the you know the uh, natural cataclysms are all natural, um, that all all events on Earth are either driven by natural events or by us, um, etc. Right. So that's that really changes the entire map. If you then say, but there's evidence there's an intelligence operating in our solar system, right? <laughs> then all the bets are off with a lot of these things. Then you say, well, hang on a minute. That obviously points towards the stronger likelihood of panspermia, mm-hmm. particularly directed panspermia. It also then uh, infers events such as, say, we have the Cambrian explosion, which you know a number of scientists came out saying that it has the hallmarks of um, an incursion of new DNA information from beyond the planet. Again, is that natural panspermia in terms of comets hitting us with bacteria? Or is that, you know, let's seed some more stuff down on the planet? Right. Again, so if you have... If you have an intelligence out there that is operating, then all of these events have to be looked at in the context as it's very likely that that is directed panspermia mm-hmm. and that we're having these these new events. And there's a, there's a number of points along the timeline where there's some quite strange leaps in evolution. You know, even with the Homo erectus and some brain changes that we see in Homo erectus could be, again, to do with modification uh, and then further along the timeline, like 200,000 years ago, they found that um, by looking at what's called DNA barcodes, which is a particular segment of DNA, they found that something like 90% of animal species, their mtDNA only stretches back to around 150 to 200,000 years ago. And so then, now this would suggest a really radical event, you know, either a massive capitalism or, or again, and this I put this to the science, I said, could it be that we have like a panspermia type event, you know, a, a retrovirus raining down, uh, infecting life and modifying DNA? And he said, yeah, that was a viable answer to what they were seeing in the information. So I think that these things have probably recurrently happened. Right. Now, it only comes down to, is it natural or is someone else out there behind a lot of mm-hmm. this stuff, you know? Well, that's kind of like that's kind of what they were talking about with the the octopus DNA. They were believing yeah. that it might have been brought down or it evolved later than we did. Or, or hitched a ride on a comet. Exactly. Yeah, they actually thought maybe uh, entire eggs arriving in a comet. Like, you know, it felt like you know they just wanted to say in a spaceship, but that you just couldn't say it. <laughs> so you had to say something that actually sounded more ridiculous. That's what's in like all the UFOs. It's just it's just octopi flying out there. <laughs> You need it's a- weird because I mean, how do you argue that the eggs would survive the impact? You know, that something as complex and large as eggs, you know, survive the impact of a comet. You know, it just sounds like a reach. Whereas it'd be more reasonable to say, you know, did a craft bring some eggs here and leave them? Right. Because I can't see how a, a comet could, you know, safely transit octopus eggs and then be viable on the yeah, surface. That's a good point. Right. So it did have that feeling of, well, is it because you just wanted to say spaceship? But you know, if you put that in your paper, that it'll be annihilated. Right. right. Yeah. Well, the human race is very skeptical about when you bring in these yeah. alien words, no pun intended. It. Yeah. I, no, it's right. You can't. You can't. I think it's a lot of um, narratives, though. Um, for instance, okay, so you've recently been on Ancient Aliens. I was... I had it on in the background while I was doing some work on the computer one Friday night. There's our buddy. One Friday night a few min- uh, a few months ago, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's Bruce. And you were talking about... Um, I think it was the... 
Hawaiian episode or something. So it was it had to do with like volcanic activity and like Lemuria yeah. and like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so yeah, you've been on Ancient Aliens. You've also been on the Science Channel and different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always wondered with the Ancient Aliens stuff because I mentioned to you before we got on air that I watch it. It's entertaining. You they show you. And I've mentioned this before. That's how I found out about Gobekli Tepe like 10 years ago or eight years ago or whatever it was. Uh, Before that, I had no idea. They didn't teach us that in school. And even though I was still in high school when they discovered it, it was never discovered. It was never discussed. So that's how I found out a lot about the stuff. And then through going the, you know, through the stuff that they have on the show, but just reading a lot of books, you know, you realize, Mm -hmm. okay, well, a lot of this stuff isn't true or even the probability of it's pretty low but there's a lot of stuff in there that is you know they talk about panspermia and possible time travel and all these Mm -hmm. different cool cool uh topics um so when you're interview when they interview for that show do you just do like a whole long interview and then they cut it up the way they want to cut it up into the episode or how does that work yeah there's usually quite a lot of questions that put to to each person who's being you know rec- recorded for the show i assume they had a list like i do so i mean it could be quite a long list of questions that you're answering uh, and then they will select from those the answer you know the, the answers they felt were strongest and you will be in the show for those questions and obviously somebody else will be in for the other ones you know so yeah it's a, it's a much longer actual interview mm-hmm. than you see um yeah i might tackle you know 20 questions or so for an episode and then you just see those sort of, you know, a few minutes where I'm answering maybe one or two, you know, or two or three questions, I think, in that episode. Mm-hmm. Certainly wasn't a lot of them. So, yeah, no, it's a lot. There's a lot more that right. I prepare for and that I research and share with them. And some of the stuff, you know, I've given to them, which they really were not aware of, you know. So it's not entirely one sided where they say, you know, here's our questions. Sure you know, people answer them. They do listen to me and I, I have given them information that they they wouldn't have known about. Now, how much of that will make it through, I'm not sure, because if there's I think there's at least one more episode coming up that I'm in. So it'd be interesting to see, yeah, if, if my information <laughs> makes it through. Um, but they seemed interested. Sure. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, because I, I, the reason why I ask is they have people like, you know, they've had Graham Hancock and other people on and Graham doesn't really talk about aliens. I mean, maybe he talks about these entities during ayahuasca ceremonies. And when he's giving these lectures, Mm -hmm. he talks about that kind of stuff, maybe like archetypal type stuff. Uh, But he's never really talking about straight aliens. So he's been up, but he's on the show whenever they talk about ancient civilizations. So that's why I was curious because they obviously cut up different things depending on what what you're talking about to play it into the episode. Um, Now, when you... uh, when you've been on the show now, um, do people recognize you and recognize your work? Is it like that? Or is it just something that uh, once in a while somebody will send you something? Um, well, I think that I don't know if the show is actually um, shown in the UK yet. Okay. In my understanding. Okay. So I, I think that it's obviously it's played in the US. And I, I don't know how it works with the different territories. So I don't know if it's, you know, if it's played in Canada yet or, or how that works, but I think it's not actually played in the uk so i haven't had anyone sort of say hey you know i saw you in that show last night so i'll have to find out when it's actually on here so of course some people watch it on the web and you know i think there was um maybe like one yeah one person at the ufo group i go to locally 
Um, they they'd seen me in it, and so they sort of come up and talked about that. But no, it hasn't got to that thing where you're in the supermarket, and you know, there's some kid looking like, "Mum, you know, that's that's the guy from Ancient Aliens." Right. So I Not guess yet, when it streams, anyway. yeah. <laughs> no. So I, I guess yeah, maybe later on. I'll have to find it when it yeah when it goes you know on onto the UK TV. One of the the main beefs I have with Ancient Aliens, and this is just a critique. Mm-hmm. I hope they listen to me because I think it would do the show justice is just to stop saying ancient ancient aliens theorists say yes when it comes to like building megalithic structures. The only mm-hmm. thing that I could even remotely entertain would be maybe these people were using, oh, we know a lot of the ancient civilizations, they were using psychedelic substances. Maybe they encountered some sort of entity. We're told or we're shown geometric patterns and like, oh, look at this sick pyramid. I'm on an ayahuasca analog in the Middle East and yeah. I'm going to build this thing. You know, I could see something mm-hmm. like that, but to actually come out and say these physical entities came down, they built this, even though it's, it was modern to us, it's crude for what you would consider somebody tra- transcending the stars and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, anti-gravity technology, whatever the case may be. So sure. um, it just does the, the show a little bit of disservice mm. and discredits it a it might bit. do it disservice to your eyes yeah. but it might be bringing in the yeah the, okay the so people that want that so stuff. from like a viewership and like fan standpoint i guess i could see that being like a like a um uh like a phrase that that people love to come back to whatever the case may. i'm just saying like i'm all about trying to find credibility in things that yeah, sure. um are maybe not the most credible topics to even begin with but i just think that if you're going to talk about these things it would add another level of credibility to discuss that um but yeah i mean look my position on stone structures is that you know it's a human level technology that you know i would assume that if i can travel the the galaxy now i I, i'm always wary of of putting too much forward into what aliens think and all the rest of that but one can probably reasonably assume if you can travel the cosmos that you'd have something on the lines of you know nanotechnology that i could just spray down onto the planet and it would build me you know some kind of you know geodesic domes of of super meta materials or whatever you know and that they would just build themselves and i land and go in my airtight dome with my atmosphere in it and you know it would seem awfully crude if you know after arriving there i've got to start cutting up blocks of stone and stacking mm-hmm. them so i mean i i definitely don't see any stone structures on earth as evidence of aliens constructing something you know um, again like you said it could be argued that people came into contact with an intelligence that suggested to them to build them or say maybe they saw some visionary imagery of those yeah of those but in terms of the alien contact yeah maybe the how to do it you know that you i guess what we think of as a, a psychical contact that you know we hear stories of people obviously having psychical contacts with entities that maybe you could somebody had that happen it said you know you can build by using this cog you know and putting a uh, rope around it and you know that it may be that something like that and you could say now was this building unusually complex for the time you know does it suggest maybe an engineering technology was shared in some way Mm -hmm. right that that's okay that's a leap you can do i i definitely don't think there's evidence to suggest any stone structure on this planet anywhere ever was built directly by an alien being that's my position yeah i mean i agree with that um you got a little bit of rattling on your end too. I don't know if it's the base of your microphone is okay. what it sounds like. Uh, but I was just want to let you know it was just that little section got a little loud. I just wanted to. Sure. Okay. Um, but so 
Let's move on, though, a little bit to... I wanted to talk about Gnosticism because I've been commenting on some of your stuff on Twitter and we've been going back and forth mm-hmm. on some stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. Uh, I believe you listened to the same thing on Audible that I did, that uh, Great Courses um, Gnosticism uh, one, which is actually excellent. People should check that out. Mm-hmm. I forget the name. I think it's from Nag Hammadi to... Um, yeah, to the, um, I think the Gospel of Judas. Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah. Um, and it goes through the entire history of Gnosticism from an academic standpoint. Um, while they don't talk about metaphysical things being true or anything like that, they just lay it all out there and let you interpret it. That's what I liked uh, mm-hmm. about it. Um, there's a lot of things that people correlate between Gnosticism and the UFO phenomena and um, aliens in general. People talk about the Archons, which um, mm-hmm. you know is a huge connection. Uh, but why don't you talk a little bit about what fascinates you between the two topics, though? Sure. Yeah, and it definitely it's a tie-in with ancient aliens um, and and ufology, um, that, and with the religious side because this way it kind of unites and I guess again brings us a bit of background to the American cosmic mm-hmm. kind of um, argument that there are fundamental links between religious spiritual thinking, um, UFOs, ancient aliens, you know, government cover-ups. Um, that these things do tie in and, and people would tend to view them separately, but that's not really the case. And like, for example, if you look at um, the statements that came out to do with this ATIP program, which is obviously referenced by TTSA and mm-hmm. the media at large, that, you know, we, we hear stories there that there were people in the senior command who were concerned that ATIP was involving itself in religious matters, that these were angels and demons and that, you know, that the U.S. government had no business meddling in these higher dimensional, you know, religious, spiritual kind of matters. And they wanted these programs shut down. Now, you also see something similar like that happen with Project Stargate, which was the remote viewing program. Uh, and when that came out, which slipped up, I think it was Jimmy Carter talked about it on the news on a chat show or something. They, and it came out that there was this program with psychics, remote viewing other locations. Again, some of the criticism came out that was it was demonic and that they shouldn't be, you know, prying into these kind of matters. You know, that kind of thou should not suffer a witch to live kind of thinking started to come out. Um, and that, so there's always been a link in between like the anomalous phenomena and you know religious thinking. And it does tie into the the military industrial complex and some of these people who are hardcore, you know, evangelical Christians that amongst the military, right? Um, and then you, if you delve a bit further into this, you know, you get back to the roots of Christianity and Gnostic thinking and the idea that there are entities in our solar system that are operating uh, and that concerning make us perceive them in different ways. But, you know, that aerial anomalies would relate to these beings, that we have these archonic entities that essentially are running a, a bit of a scam, running a bit of a game on us, you know, delusion, uh, which links in with Buddhist thinking, you know, Maya, that we are in a sea of delusion. We have that in Hinduism. Um, indeed, you could say um, it's a fairly, yeah, it's a fairly common view. I mean, sh- shamanic thinking on the subject, again, that most shamanic um you know, ways of thinking involve some idea that, you know, we're not seeing the spirit world, we're not seeing the other world fully, that in a normal state, humans are being limited, mm-hmm. right? And that we live in a kind of delusional um, physicality. So that is, again, I would say is a fundamental concern right across a lot of different 
spiritual and religious uh, backgrounds uh, with this huge tie in again to the uh, the idea of the Gnostic thinking on you know being in this delusional reality, that there are intelligences operating in our solar system, that they basically take on the role, if you like, as as ancient aliens, you know, is that, right. that they have always been here, that they're alien to us, that they have an alien way of thinking, operating. They may even be in some respects the forces of nature or the the forces of reality itself, that they might not necessarily just be you know, physical beings that, you know, that you can have a chat with, but some of these may even be the actual, you know, the forces around us. And I'm not sure if you've seen, there was an article a little, a little while back and someone said, could, could super advanced aliens be the laws of physics? Right. And, and that's something that is quite mind bending for people. Mm-hmm. But again, that would mesh fairly well with the Gnostic view that this reality is, you know, being generated by a kind of a false God, this archon that is, deluding us and, and creating the whole physical reality now that's kind of funny when you hear scientists saying you know could you know could a really advanced alien basically be controlling your laws of physics or actually be the laws of physics and then you look at the way that that quantum physics doesn't mesh well particularly right. well with with um you know our conventional physics now is that because one of them is is not actually connecting you know that there's a, a some kind of force an entity that is those laws and that's why it doesn't mesh with the quantum world, which may be our true reality is this kind of sub-quantum world and that the delusion put upon us is the physicality and the physical world right mm-hmm. and that because it's strange that they don't mesh as well as you'd expect well actually sir roger Penrose um mentioned that i think it was on his joe rogan appearance where he mentions if there was aliens or life that possibly Mm -hmm. maybe the last eon so before this universe began there was possibly other life or civilizations possibly they were so advanced that maybe they encoded their own stuff into photons and Mm -hmm. that's why the way we interact with light or something along those lines so i thought that was kind of interesting people can go check that out if uh, they want to hear that but um, I do want to talk. So let's let's give a little bit of a backstory behind Gnosticism, though, because I'm sure there are going to be sure. people that watch this yeah. that have no idea what Gnosticism is. So it's a mm-hmm. certain sect of Christianity. Um, some may say it's the earliest form of it. Um, you know, there's different arguments. But what what's interesting is the backstory. So the story goes that there was this God is the forethought. So it's this we are some sort of. I don't even know. Like, if you're th- if the way that you think of a thought would be the way that God perceived us is the way I think about it, but that might be a little bit different. Um, and that this the female aspect of that uh, Sophia emanated without her male counterpart, which would have been the Christ, and then it created this false universe. And the offspring was the God that we would consider the God of the Old Testament. He's mm-hmm. in Gnosticism. He's called Yaldabaoth. Um, some people call him Yahweh, some people, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. the, whatever you want to call him, uh, but the God of the Old Testament. And then um, so you look at the Old Testament and the way that God is talked about. He is a vengeful God. He is a um, uh, a jealous God. You know, there's a lot of these different mm-hmm. archetypes that are associated. So if you were this great, all su- supreme, omnipotent or uh, omniscient, um, omnipresent being, you wouldn't need to even deal with those you know what i'm saying um so mm-hmm. so that's the the kind of so basically the the universe that we're living in is um 
a copy off of a true realm or a true and actually i just thought about this but this is kind of almost like plato's forms how there's this world and then there's this other world where we come from that we're like modeled after so there there is a connection between ancient thinking Mm -hmm. and actually the word gnosis is a greek term so i guess maybe they even knew about that Mm -hmm. i don't know but um it seems so yeah so they had a similar so that's basically the backstory and then they found the nakamadi um texts which is a lot of the oldest versions of the bible um and uh, yeah do you have anything to add to that yeah i do i mean particularly because it does relate to my work and I, i wasn't implicitly um gnostic in hybrid humans or not particularly so in the new book and exogenesis either but you know i do mention gnosticism and there's a little bit of i think if anyone's aware that there's a point where i talk about a a mass reincarnation of uh, uh there was a few let me think i think so a couple of decades back there was an english scientist who was at the heart of the story where he was a, he's a psychiatrist and he was treating a patient she recovered these memories of being basically being one of the, the Cafars. Now, over a period of, I think, months or a few years, it turned out that a whole load of his patients had memories that connected to a life in, in France at the time of the Cafars and at the time of the, of the basically, of the annihilation of the Cafars by the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to be that there was this group reincarnation which occurred for, in Bristol in the Southwest, which is not far from where I'm from. I'm about 20, 20 miles from Bristol. Uh, where i'm from and anyway so this this t- there was this whole case and they were remembering details that were super obscure you know that they had to go to experts really in you know historical research of the of the region to get <laughs> confirmations and it was turning out yeah yes you know the clothes they were describing was correct the practices they had been described were correct yeah the names of people turned out to be you know in the ledgers of the vatican for those you know, burned and stuff like that mm-hmm. really obscure stuff that you just you know you couldn't just start guessing right um and then that connected through the material in in the hybrid humans book because again you're dealing with a kind of group reincarnation in australia now in the source book behind hybrid humans which is called um alteringa when the first answers are created which um any readers of the book will know that i tackle information from this other book mm-hmm. now in there the author valerie barrow discusses how after she had this kind of connection with an aboriginal artifact which i argue is probably a an alien technology because it was able to do a voice to skull communication with her gave her a whole load of information about the history of our planet that soon after that she started encountering people who had memories of a life at that time when this alien incursion was happening and they would share bits of information which correlated with what this artifact had told her. So she was getting, and he had said to her, you will meet people who will confirm these things I'm telling you. And she started meeting loads of people that seem to have lived at that time. So it's, as far as I know, the only two large group reincarnations on record anywhere that I know of. And the funny thing is Valerie as well herself, she remembers a life as a Kafar and at the time of the burnings and stuff. So it's, it's, it's quite surreal and that they, and she actually believes that some of this information is the lost book of the, it would have been in the lost book of the Cafars is to do with the information she's, that she is now, if you like, returning to us. And she strongly feels that there's a link between the lost Cafar knowledge and the information that this Alteringa, this entity or whatever from, you know, an extraterrestrial intelligence is also sharing information the Cafars knew. And that's something she seemed to strongly feel. So there's a, a peculiar link with 
you know, with Gnosticism and the Cathars there, but also the story itself. You know, I, I would suggest that there's some really strong links, because if we look at the creation story from a Gnostic point of view, we have the garden and we have obviously these this kind of God, which is a flawed God and it's flawed angels that it wants to create. So it creates the first humans, you know, creates firstly Adam mm. and later Eve. But this is a flawed creation and these beings can hardly stand, you know, they can hardly function, that they don't really have the divine energy that a, a fully formed um, deity or these be you know, these emanations, if they, they work in unison as they're supposed to, that each one has a consort, like it's almost having a male female aspect, that when they create in con with their consort, you know, things are perf perfect. But because of the way, as you said, you know, it was started off with an imperfect creation, mm -hmm. that its sub creations are also imperfect. So these first humans are flawed. And then we have the this upgrade, if you like, where, you know, help is kind of sent we have guys Sophia and the entrance into the story and we have this higher energy is brought into these first humans which gives them an upgrade they now have a, a light soul and you know a, a more of a godly presence and in fact it can sit to be potentially higher than the god of this world right mm -hmm. because of this energy that's brought in now that's awfully similar to the underlying theme that i'm sharing that we have these flawed creations we have these kind of homo erectus that are muddling about the place for a million years without doing much more than creating their their early stone tools they don't progress much in a million years right it's and then we have these beings that enter the scene um, that are on a kind of a divine mission. That's kind of stated in the in the original book that they are sent by the Elohim. <laughs> the Elohim are there, right there in the in the Bible stories. You know that these are the gods who create us like them. You know, it's a group. It's, it's a plural. You know that we have the the gods that come down and that they make us more like in their image. So there's an upgrade occurs. Now that's kind of funny. And also we have this story in the garden with what is often referred to as the serpent, but if you look at some of the Gnostic texts, it's actually an eagle um, that speaks and says, you know, that you, you need to eat from this fruit because right. basically you're being kind of lied to here, you know, <laughs> that there's a reason why this God doesn't want you to, to eat this fruit. Uh, and in fact, the fact that the God doesn't notice them do all this, keep in mind that if this is the omnipotent all-mother, all-father of all things, right, it should be able to control everything, know everything, and all the rest. But instead, they're able to sneak and go and eat the um, eat the fruit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that, so clearly something's not right with that story, because and then God comes along and gets really angry, not expecting this to have happened, right? So this God is starting to sound rather um, not so omnipotent, right? right. Because yeah. it gets a bit of a shock that this has happened, and it gets into quite a tizzy and wants them gone, because now they understand for a start, probably, that their God is not that good, because they now know about good and evil, right? And so there's I've a got, whole load of conundrums come up. I've got a note on that, actually, I've been thinking about a lot lately. And mm -hmm. to, to your point, good call on that, I forgot to mention that. So in most Christian sects, that the, the snake or the serpent or the eagle um, is considered evil or the one that's corrupting humanity mm -hmm. or taking away our innocence, whatever the case may be. Um, in reality, in Gnosticism, it's reversed. It's that yeah. the flawed God created us, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. and that um, the true, the one true God or the, the, the energy presence or whatever it is took the form of the serpent and told, or the, the eagle and told them to eat from the, the tree of life and, or, you know, the fruit. And, 
for me, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. What makes people think about good and evil and what takes people to another place? Well, it's psychedelics. And we know the tree of life in like Assyrian uh, ancient civilization depicts, you know, with the pine cones and the buckets, there's a lot of suggestion that it could be psychedelic related. And I've just been researching a lot on Soma. We're going to do a little video on that. And the, the it comes from the, uh, the Indo-Iranian migrations and one separated off to the, the Vedic culture and one separated off to what we know as, you know, old Iraqi or, or um, excuse me, uh, Assyrian culture. Now, when you look at those trees of life, the fruit, how could it not be psychedelic in my opinion? Because number one, anybody that's done psychedelics knows that when you come down, if you're like, a, mm -hmm. a, you, everything's working in your brain properly, you should A, not want to do it again for a long time. B, you would feel some sort of metaphysical spirituality, some sort of presence there. Some people see entities, some people uh, encounter, you know, different uh, beings. And then mm -hmm. C, psychedelics make you want to be better, be a better person. You look at all the negative things in your life and you come out of it like, I got to fix this. I want to, especially for sure. me, it's still when you do psilocybin and you come down, it's like, <laughs> I got to get my life to, in order. Even if it is in order at the time, it's just like it, it pushes you to be a better person. Um, yeah. And I don't know if that's the same way for everybody, but a lot of people I hear talk about it, it's the same kind of a thing. Um, so I, when you're yeah. talking about that aspect of it, that's what I correlate it to because I think that there's, probably something to that you're you're opening mm -hmm. your eyes to a whole nother reality that you didn't know existed um and then coming out of it and saying oh we got to get our stuff together so yeah no it makes sense i mean one of the things i've pondered on that as well is that you know i strongly believe that the early humans that transitioned if you like from uh, probably homo erectus not necessarily but certainly a homo, homo erectus like hominin right we go back around 800,000 years ago, but that's what we have, something like that. I suspect that these are hominins living in the jungles, largely the jungles of Southeast Asia. Now, that's a that's a pretty good, you know, uh, mesh with the idea of a garden in which there are these, these trees that perhaps they've been warned not to eat from. Because, look, if there's just one tree, which might a garden like an English garden, right? Like it is someone because this the sense we get this idea that this is you know this is God's garden manicured and there's a, a couple of trees at the end that you got to stay away from right. right simple enough but it'd be pretty easy if God just to, I don't know let's say get rid of those trees or cover them or so I think that what we're talking about is there is a kind of tree that you got to stay away from but there's a lot of them right so they they can't stop right. you getting to that tree now if you're in a jungle and someone says look that tree there is this tree of good and evil you must not eat from it. But they can't stop you because it's everywhere, right? So they, that's why they, they sort of say, avoid that tree because we can't actually stop you so we're telling you don't do it. It's everywhere. Now, that makes sense in a jungle environment, right? That there's right. no way they can stop. That it's going to be so everywhere. They can't stop you. So they're trying to warn you off. Now, what do we have in a jungle? We probably have something like an equivalent, maybe the, a rue tree, or we have perhaps you know something like an ayahuasca vine that mm -hmm. is growing in the jungles of Southeast Asia somewhere, which I've always wondered, you know, are we going to at some point find an equivalent, you know, to the ayahuasca vine somewhere in those jungles? Quite possibly, because there's a strong serpent connection. Of course, you know, nearly everyone who, who drinks ayahuasca has an encounter with a serpent at some point. If you drink it a few times, you'll probably have an encounter with a serpent, right? So it's kind of an interesting tie-in there. And 
also I now know there's been contact between a uh, very early contact between the oceanic region, you know, Australia and across to South, South America. Right. In fact, there's there's evidence that Aboriginal type people were in South America at least 50,000 years ago. Or so now, is it possible that there has been a, a movement of certain plants between these regions, you know, may even be, again, we're going to quite speculation, but maybe they brought some psychedelics with them that have been mm-hmm. in the jungles with them there. So, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if one day we find... Well, acacia is prevalent in, in, in Australia. I think it's prevalent in the Middle yeah. East, too. And that's, you mentioned Syrian rue. Syrian rue is a, a MAOI inhibitor, which is what disables the uh, amino acids in your gut, so you can mm-hmm. then process the, uh, the DMT um yeah, yeah I acacia mean, is I, a good batch you know acacia is um, a very likely one certainly it's a tree you know and it's a, it, it can give you those effects as you say of of knowing that the events in your life are either more positive to people or more negative to people and to yourself so in terms of a knowledge of good and evil it certainly meshes really well and it would be fairly widespread you wouldn't be able to stop someone encountering a um you know one of the trees because they are everywhere and there's a lot of different varieties which also have psychedelic compounds you know it's not just one type so i think about what you're saying too good and evil like that's what i mean every trip i've had has had those components good and you you Mm -hmm. are literally thinking about good and evil darkness and light those are Mm -hmm. the themes very much so so it meshes quite well and it does with again with the region that there's more and more evidence showing that we were in jungles very early that they're now showing i think there's evidence of modification of jungle environments in in south asia in southeast asia going back forty thousand or something years ago mm-hmm. that they know the amazon jungle is almost like a market garden that went wild right because they've, they've realized that this the distribution of plants and trees that are useful to human beings is well out of you know the, the numbers you'd expect if it was a natural jungle where mm-hmm. you know instead it seems that we have cultivated that region and at some point it just became you know overgrown and those plants have obviously spread but we can see that someone had been cultivating plants that were useful to humans so again these are gardens you know that what we think of as pure jungles are in fact why now wild gardens right? right so that in itself is quite quite intriguing now, and I, I strongly suspect that, yeah, that Southeast Asian jungles were the, if you like, the archetype of the first garden home of right. these early humans. And I'm not saying for sure that this is the root of it. Just to me, it makes sense from having experience with these uh, psychoactive compounds and talking to a lot of people, reading a lot of books, looking at all the research. I think it does at least play a role. Um, so I think that there's that. And that doesn't rule out anything metaphysical either because... Right now, there's a lot of people trying to map out the DMT realm, and they have no idea what's going on inside of there. And there's really no way to even, even if they found something, there's no way to even back it up because we don't even know for sure what consciousness is. So, um, mm-hmm. And I know you and I go back and forth on that too on Twitter as well uh, a little bit. Um, and it, it, it comes down to, yeah, you can somebody can read the brain or look at an MRI or... Um, you know, different things and kind of get an idea of what, what parts of the brain are lighting up, what neurons are, are firing and different things. But at the end of the day, how does that whole picture get processed? And how, um, is it that we're these, we're the only species. If you think consciousness is just like, everything's conscious that's alive. Well then Mm -hmm. how come we're so much more advanced than how come nothing else is advanced to this level 
Um, so these are the questions that I ask myself. Uh, we're able to ma manipulate our surroundings in, in a completely different way than any sort of animal. I mean, there's nothing. We create things that create things. And, they're, you know, when you look at animals, some of them might use sticks to get ants out of holes or this or that or use a tool. Well, here they're using spears now. Spears. But, that, <laughs> yeah. again, that's from learning from us. So um, that was an orangutan that saw a human fish with a, a long stick and said, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to try that. So <laughs> maybe we learn from something else, too. I, again, I don't know. These are definitely yeah. things to think about. When well, will apes had... be podcasting? That's the question. <laughs> They are. They are. His name's Maurice. We can ourselves. <laughs> they can take over. They can use our equipment. Neanderthal. <laughs> it's. Um, I look. There, there was a recently. There was a paper that came out actually on on that topic. I don't know if you've seen the studies that suggest, you know, humans are essentially a, um, a domesticated primate species. I did see right? that. Yeah. 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 So there's there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that. In fact, a lot of our physical traits come about from domestication. Now, so it's argued that we are, in fact, the only self-domesticated animal on the planet. Now, people should just take that on board for a minute and just think about that. So basically, animals don't self-domesticate except for in the one case of human beings. Now, I would say that whenever you get something like that, an anomaly like that, you stop and just think, I'm not just going to swallow that because... There's something really odd about the idea that no animal can self-domesticate, and yet we did, right? right? Because I would say that, in fact, that what that infers is that we had contact with something else. Because we know that the only time animals become domesticated is in contact with humans who are already domesticated, yeah? Right. So there, there, is, there is a huge anomaly on that story. Now, what does self-domestication into? What we have found is that, basically, if you contrast Neanderthals against modern humans that there are and then you take say like um dogs and, and wild dogs you know that you can see that there's certain genetic changes that occur partly for epigenetics and others over longer periods that occur that we end up with with two populations one being far more robust you know more solidly built um that has particular behavioral traits that are different and we see this also in neanderthals and modern humans we see that you know the brow all these things like the brow ridges and the you know, the, the broader frame and um heavier bone structure and stuff that we used to think of as being kind of like they're more primitive actually no it's more that they lived a more feral wild uh, lifestyle and they lived in small family groups disparate across regions and that that's all coming out now it's turned out there was a large population but they were very disparate they, they were in their small groups we tended to form these kind of tribes and that we operated in a, a more domestic way you know more sedentary lifestyle over time mm -hmm. and that that physically changed us that, that so what you see in the neanderthal isn't necessarily the product of there being such a different species but that perhaps if we lived you know, in the way they do, we would start to develop those kind of features as well, that we, we've only lost them because of, well, largely because of domestication, the processes that that involves, right? Right. Now, I infer that at the beginning of our lineage, there was an incursion by an intelligent species. Now, that would that would take the place of the domesticating event, right? Because it, if we were formed in an experimental group by an extraterrestrial race, right, that is taking some wild feral hominins, modifying them, shepherding them initially over time, but they've now become domesticated, right? They're living right. under the auspices of a, of a higher intelligence that's shepherding them about, trying to upgrade them or whatever and, and instruct them and, and change them. So 
that's the beginning of the process of domestication. Yes, we self-domesticate after that. But I would suggest that that's a glaring red flag of a contact event is the fact that no other animal ever has self-domesticated. Yeah, and that's I, a good point. Yeah, it it's uh it's definitely interesting to think about. I mean, again, I would I would consider it mm -hmm. and I would take it seriously because I don't think it's that it's not like, oh, come on, this kind of, you know, it's it's a it's a mm -hmm. it's something where it should be pondered. I think that there are things that we don't want to ponder, or it's yeah. yeah exactly. Chew on that, Neil deGrasse. <laughs> yeah. Well, they they have to look at it as an anomaly. When you have an anomaly, you have to face that anomaly and look at it, consider it, offer you know explanations for it. Just saying that, well, you know, it happened. It's like the abiogenesis argument. We've no idea how life can come right. out of a rock pool, but you no, know, well, yeah. we're just as infer that we're it the must cosmic happen. lottery winner. That's what they're saying. Yeah, that's it. It just it happened and it happened. So please don't. You know, don't try and distract me with your arguments against it because we know it must have happened because here we are, you know, and these kind of closed loop thinking where, you know, because if you're not willing to factor in that there could be other causal, you know, events that you don't like, but just because you don't like them. Right. right. So that's, there's nothing really scientific about that, just because my preference is I don't like the idea that aliens could reach Earth and I don't like the idea that they could have been involved in my backstory. The, ergo, it cannot have happened. You know, it is it's a really bizarre and arrogant position to take because we know today there is no reason why extraterrestrials can't have reached earth in the ancient past now there's any honest space scientist recognizes that given enough time and in fact they worked i think a million years that you know a civilization could have visited anywhere in the milky way because there's been billions of years right so right. you just need enough time to have set off so they started expanding a million years ago and even at sublight speeds that you can essentially branch out and have visited everywhere in the Milky Way. Yeah. Right. So there's actually no issue at all with this this perceived barrier that oh, it's, the stars are too far mm. apart, and, and and that's not true. And, it, and at times the stars are really close. And some point out in like about ten thousand years, our nearest star is going to be like I think it's a couple of light years away and stuff like because we forget that the stars are all moving. They're all in right. motion, but they're not all moving the same direction. They don't stay the same distances apart. So you can have stars that pass by. In fact, 70,000 years ago, a star passed through the Oort cloud. Oh, that's super close. Right. That's basically the edges of our solar system. So let's say a star yeah, with planets around it, which are inhabited, passed through the Oort cloud. Yeah. It's not a big jump for them right. to then visit Earth. So when we don't know the science, how many people know that? Probably what, right. less than one percent of the people well, alive. I didn't know it. I think it's it's coming. Yeah. Well, it comes down to precession of the equinox. Most people don't know what precession is, and that every what is it, one thousand years, the we move one point seven degrees, or it's something like that. I'd have to look it up, but um, mm -hmm. where that's why all that stuff, you know, the Graham Hancock theory and the alignments with uh, the Sphinx, uh, with uh, Leo, and the pyramids with the uh, Belt of Orion. All those stuff come, come comes into play because they can simulate where those stars were back at the certain dates and stuff like that. So what you're talking about, I mean, definitely makes a lot sure of sense. Movie. But people don't people don't even think about that kind of stuff. They don't think it because we don't know it. We know most people are not really up to date on the science. And a lot of these things are very recent, you know, understanding. Some of these things are recent understanding. Others aren't. We just we're not very well informed. You know, um, I didn't know that until. You know, I think about a week ago, really, I think there was an article that came out right. that was discussing that in more depth. And, you know, you're saying that, you know, it only took a million years and that if they chose the right routes through these moving stars, that they could be yeah, anywhere. Sure. Yeah? So 
when you infer that, then the idea that there could have been an intelligence operating in our solar system from whenever, millions of years ago, billions of years ago, it becomes intrinsically possible. Now, that doesn't mean that it's true, but it becomes possible. Now, that's the point. When you know something is possible, that you should look for the evidence of it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that's the honest approach in science. Is when you get, and you get an anomaly or a problem, you look for evidence to try to resolve it, right? And to understand it. That's that's exactly. what it is. We have a problem. We have life appears unexplained. Well, that's a problem. We've been trying to solve that one. One of the solutions for that is it comes from outside, right? Now, a lot of people say, well, then you're just pushing the, you know, you're, you're kicking the ball down the road a bit or whatever. Mm -hmm. So what? If it solves the objective problem you're dealing with, right? Right. That, that That's not an argument against it, yeah? Because then you can say, well, okay, well, how did that life start? Maybe that was abiogenesis. Right. I'm not. Nobody's saying it couldn't have been. But we're saying well, it's definitely it, the first life, step. That's true. Yeah. I mean, look, cause it could be that abiogenesis occurs. Right. That somewhere out in the universe it occurred. It doesn't mean it occurred first here. Right. Yeah. Because because one of the problems we have is life appears here extremely fast. And they now think that that within 100 million years there was life. Right. Basically, when the crust solidified, life appeared. Now, right. For a long time, it was assumed it would take about a billion years of random events that eventually life would appear. No, the crust appears, life, you know, life sort of emerges and it gets going straight away. Now, that's super weird because even, even the, you know, the most sort of, um, you know, I guess, open minded scientists thought it would take a vast period for abiogenesis to right. occur and they think those and like that, precip actually... the precipitates those like volcanic uh hydrothermal little volcanoes underwater is was the mm -hmm. breeding ground for the first organisms or something along those lines where they initially thought that it was our atmosphere with like methane and water and then somehow getting charged up through lightning storms and stuff like that so mm -hmm. um we're always learning and that's kind of <laughs> it's the old adage, but don't put all your eggs in one basket. But that's kind of my approach to all this stuff is mm -hmm. that I'm not going to commit to one thing. I mean, yeah, I have certain beliefs now, but they're evolving just like science is evolving, just like uh, spirituality is evolving, just like everything's evolving. So um, I think that that's where people get hung up. Scientists, the public, they want an answer and they want it to be this like solidified thing that now they can move on with their life or whatever the case may be. Well, mm -hmm. that's just not the case. If you're on some sort of journey for knowledge or some sort of, um, you know, path of enlightenment or something, it's, it doesn't stop until you die. Um, and even mm -hmm. then who knows what happens. It could continue on after that, but um, well, you should treat everything in your life like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Photography, yeah, yeah. painting, Whatever you, whatever mm -hmm. your endeavors are. Yeah, we know yeah, you're into photography, bro. Plug. <laughs> shout out to uh, Maurice's new website, by the way, MauriceHogan.com. He's got tons of cool pictures on there. He is a professional photographer and videographer. And if you live in the Detroit area, he'll hook you up. So go to his website. Thank you, sir. I mean, you're right. I mean, yeah, I don't think many painters would say, you know, I've painted my thousandth painting. That's it. I retire right. painting. You know, cause you, all the journeys we're on in life tend to be a lifelong journey. Look and at Whatever your thing is. Da Vinci, what did he only paint? Eight, eight, ten paintings, and they're all masterpieces. And then this guy just is like, oh, time for something else, you know. <laughs> but yeah, he was a master of love. Exactly, yeah. He still carried oh, on yeah. his inventions. Oh, yeah. And, you know. But, yeah, look, I think that there's there's definitely a number of anomalies that, that are pointing towards uh, contact with an intelligence. I mean, another one is, you may have seen this, there was a news story that came out about, uh, I think it was a reticular language, 
and again that's 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 a problematic one the idea that to have a language system where you can conceptualize and discuss events or objects and events that are not only separated by space but also by time right that as far as we know we're not sure but as far as we know we're the only animal on this planet that can do that Hmm. right um that you know i can say to you you know well at five o'clock we'll go down and get the fish from the river and we'll bring them back and put them on the rock and we can link all these things and you will be able to conceptualize that in your head this story of things that we're going to do the objects involved that they're going to come back here and at a certain other point in time that doesn't exist at the moment we'll be sitting on that rock and we're gonna eat the fish right we can we can do all that without a problem now that was not always the case in fact, it took a, um, a change in our genes, which allowed part of the frontal cortex to develop in a different way, uh, which, to even allow us to do that. And then on top of that, you have to actually be exposed to this language structure between the ages basically of being you know, a baby and about five years old. And you have to be regularly exposed to this language structure for that part of the, the cortex to actually develop to allow you mm. to have that language structure, right? And this is really super weird because they found that, you know, if kids are not exposed to, up to, you know, to in early life, they can never get those skills, right? These kids, these feral kids that are raised by wolves or whatever, they never get those skills back. They, mm. they can get a very loose level of it, but they will never have that those skills, right? They will struggle for all their life to be able to conceptualize in those ways. Right. And this is why we know that it's, it's it definitely has to be in childhood. Like neglected children have huge problems later on with this. Now, how do you end up with this happening? If you've got nobody that has that language structure and the only way to utilize it is to have the brain structure, which only occurs by having been exposed to it in childhood and you've got nobody around you who can expose you to it because nobody else ever had it, right? So the argument is they, they put out a paper and there's this guy's discussing this, saying that obviously this looks like a, a hard barrier, a hard evolutionary barrier. Like how do you get over it? Because then you have to infer a very strange set of circumstances where somehow two children, this is his argument, somehow two children come up with this language between them, mm -hmm. speaking it to each other, to then have this brain region form. But then, you know, that, that immediately you think, but hey, you've already said, they can't because mm -hmm. their brain region hasn't formed that will allow them to have that thinking. And so, and even then you've got to infer that there's this, like a lightning striking twice thing, isn't it? You, know, you have these two children, they have to be next to each other uh, and over several years. So it's almost like they have to be brother and sister or right. you know, the family next door and they have to spend all that time together. And then you have to wonder, and it, does, does that not require probably that they have children? And that this, because the genetic anomaly is recessive as well. So they said, if you don't develop this, structure the the recessive anomaly would have faded away quickly from the genome mm -hmm. it's like well, hang on a minute this is like super weird so you've got this you know, first of all genetic mutation which is recessive and unlikely and that is of no benefit at all without someone speaking to you you know it starts feeling like is this a deliberate upgrade and of these upgrades someone's someone's done this then they, they teach you the language and you propagate it right, right? so these anomalies you don't say well, it must be that, but you have to be able to ask and say, well, hang on, I'm not just swallowing the idea that the impossible happened without something strange happening around it, just because nobody wants to talk about weird things occurring, right? Again, you get something, well, it just happened, like abiogenesis. We don't need to explain it, because to try and put an explanation other than this one, we're going to super weird topics that right. we're not comfortable with.
you know so i have a problem with that kind of the limitations of science not where you, where you should believe you know you, you don't have to believe god came down or aliens did it or spirits talked in people's heads but you you have to not limit yourself to well there's no possible way of this happening other than it just did so let's just go with it just did right yeah. well it's, <laughs> it's just the dogmatic way of thinking and like the, whether it's religion whether it's science whether it's whatever it is uh, people, te like I said, they want to hold on to one thing as like one truth. Um, in reality, when can you look back even a hundred years and be like, those people got it right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, mm -hmm. some aspects, you know, there's some aspects that we revere even from ancient Egypt, but there's a lot of stuff that's still wrong that you, that we've built upon that we've improved mm -hmm. that somebody was like, Hey, let's look at it this way. Um, and that's why, um, I think we should be promoting more, and we talked about this on our last episode, just say this is our best guess. It's not 100% right. Even in school, if you were to say, where did life come from? And again, they teach you abiogenesis in science class and chemistry class and different things. If you were just to say, this is our best guess based on what we know about the earth at the time, but it's still open for you know, to be changed or maybe that's only part of the story or maybe it's wrong altogether. I think you would have a mm -hmm. lot more young scientists out there trying to figure this stuff out. But since there's this mm -hmm. air of, oh, we know what's going on here, or it's just a, a, it's just a more precise narrative, meaning that they're taking all the measurements, they're taking all the stuff and they're saying they're putting the, the you know, this, uh, this, this, um, uh, story together and, again, we have to be able to modify it at some point because it's not going to be right a hundred years from now, a thousand years from no. now, whatever, if we survive a million years from now, you know, yeah, um, we almost look back on the people a hundred years and go, oh, they're barbarians compared to us. Yeah. I mean, less than a hundred years ago, I think it's less than a hundred years ago or a little bit over. They were still saying, you know, that meteorites were a fantasy and that the, I think maybe a little bit longer than hundred years ago, but they, they actually, you know, the leading scientists were saying it was ridiculous. The idea that stones could fall from the sky, you know, <laughs> you stupid people, you didn't see that. So, I mean, we have to keep in mind that that's, you know, leading minds of science. We're universally agreeing that, that despite all the, astro you know, all those me, you see every year that, that that's not, no, no, it couldn't be stones falling from the sky. Right. So, so we, we've got to keep it in mind that, you know, as you say, science progresses, that we've had, you know, leading thinkers that have fought really stupid, wrong things historically and not that long ago. We're not talking about, you know, a thousand years ago that, you know, science has rapidly changed and it will continue to change. And that if you, from my view, I mean, I take a sort of a Gnostic view of this as well, that if you take the Gnostic approach, humans are kind of fundamentally flawed in that, you know, we, we are a bit delusional, mm -hmm. you know, by our default setting and that we live in a, a kind of a, a world that is kind of delusional. And if you look around, I mean, it's, you know, it does seem that there's an awful lot of delusion, you know, in the human experience. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of intrinsic and that even the greatest minds, we do self-delude. And that we also, we talked at the beginning there about jumping on to solid beliefs or disbeliefs. And I think that's another problem that we want some certainty. And, you know, so sometimes people will come to a, a quick conclusion, which is not very scientific, but they're like, well, no, that's ridiculous. You know, and they won't consider the evidence. I mean, it's, this, this happens often with all paranormal UFOs, all that stuff that, that you have experts that will say, well, you know, it's absolutely ridiculous. And then if, if someone says, so, you know, which studies and papers have you read? that led you to come to the conclusion it was ridiculous. Well, I haven't read any, of course, because right. it's just ridiculous. So, so you're totally uninformed, but you're willing to give your expert academic opinion that it's ridiculous, yeah. These right? People, and you man, think, yeah. mm, well, that's a bit suspicious. Because You'd think you'd at least bother to read what studies exist, right? You know? 
I th- so, I think you're right. I mean, I, I again, I don't argue. I I do love science. I think there's a lot of good scientists out there. I think that sure. my, my favorite scientists are the people that push the boundaries, that push the limits, that take chances. It's like if I if I were going to spend all that time and learn all that stuff and become a scientist, I'm going to be the visionary kind. That's the kind that I would mm-hmm. be because I think that we can do this thing where we slowly crawl forward and yeah, we got some technology and things are, you know, improving and um, Mm -hmm. whether people want to believe this or not, every there's more people living at a, at a, um, at a more, um, how do you, I don't want to say it. It's people only like 1% of of the world is actually um, living in what we would consider like uh absolute squalor um obviously there's people that are hungry there's a lot of problems out there but it's the best time to be alive in in human history and people don't want to acknowledge that because there's all sorts of political socio-economical and different things going on but in terms of survival rate and and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things it's the best time to be alive that we know of at least um so when you look at it like that um yeah, we're doing the slow crawl thing where we're pushing the ball forward little by little by little. But then you've got people like Elon Musk. You've got people um, that are thinking outside the box, like a Steve Jobs, or you know. And mm-hmm. you might not think of the iPod or the iPad as that crazy, but it is because we're all walking around with one now. Um, and mm-hmm. it's basically yeah. we're yeah. we're basically hybrid humans with we're. we're Mm-hmm. You know, we're entangling ourselves with technology day by day. So those are sure. the kinds of things that are moving us along better or worse. I don't know. Do we want to mm-hmm. go down the technology path? Is it a mistake? I, that's something that I don't think anybody can really look into the future and understand. But again, my favorite no, scientists okay. are these people that really, um, these visionaries. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, not, I'm, I'm fundamentally interested in science. I'm not an anti-science person. I'm, I'm both... Um, you know, the forgotten exodus and the hybrid human work is based on you know where i could i was looking for scientific papers particularly you know peer-reviewed or well-respected you know um journals or whatever as, as the sources to which i would go to because i think you know those like or not you know those are the best standards that we have uh, it doesn't mean that they're infallible it doesn't mean that you know nothing ridiculous gets through peer-reviewed we know that it does there's a lot of hoo-ha about the fact that some really silly papers have been deliberately put through peer review processes and have got through so so but you know you have to have some kind of sense so I mean, yes i use you know where i can you know mainstream science research you know in my work you know in, in fact i deliberately avoided um, independent researchers' work, particularly for Forgotten Exodus, because, you know, one of the easy outs for scientists is, oh, you know, oh, look, he's using those those pseudoscientists' work mm-hmm. or, you know, these <laughs> these pseudo-archaeologists. So I thought, well, I'm not going to make it easy for them by throwing in cause one of those references, and that will be enough. And you know, they'll say, oh, he uses such and such work, you know, throw the book in the fire, right? <laughs> so because... <laughs> So because of that, you know, I, I deliberately left out interesting finds that I would have discussed, but I know that that would be the immediate response, right? So um, with with the alien stuff, hybrid humans, you know, yes, I brought in some perhaps some strange stuff because I already know that those kind of people are not even going to read that book, right? Right. Because it's, it's got it's got a challenge for them on the cover. Alien, the word alien. Oh, God, aliens. You know, watch out. So, watch out. We can't deal with that. You know, so in there, yeah, I mean, I tackled probably some more... Um, I guess some, some not necessarily peer-reviewed stuff, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but where I could, certainly I did. You know, when we talk about the australites and we talk about the impacts, um, we talk about the genetic engineering. You know, obviously I'm going to, 
the academic studies on those things. I'm not saying that, you know, I went and found a rock and I tested it in my home lab and I think it's this old, you know, because right. if I do that, then it's, look, it's nonsense. You know, I know I haven't got the skills to do that. I know I haven't got a lab to do that or the funding to pay anyone. So I, mean, I rely on the universities, the mainstream scientists who can go and test DNA, who can, you know, they can date an impact event, you know, this I just cannot do. So, you know, I'm very grateful and respectful to the fact that, you know, I'm using academics work all the time, even if I have some criticisms of, you know, their tendency to ignore certain anomalies and to skip over them. Yeah. I mean, have you ever heard of the book uh, Gods with Amnesia by Robert Spear? Not sure if I, I'm I've saying that name right. I've seen it online. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it online. I've not read it myself, but I know that I know of it. Someone's asking about that in our chat, wondering your thoughts on that. But we'll have to do some research. Maybe get back to them. Uh, I've seen a few a few things. It's, let's just say it's, it's not for me. From the, some of the things I've seen, the memes and quotes and stuff, I just I think it's not for me. So that's my uh -huh. polite way of putting it. All right. All right. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when I look at all this stuff, again, I think that it's hard not to wonder why more people don't question this. But again, I think ignorance is bliss. I mean, I think, man, I had some fun times before I started down this path a few years ago and started doing this podcast and reading and actually looking into things. Um, it became kind of almost like a letdown, like, oh, we really don't know what we pretend to know um mm -hmm. and even then it's just this again it's i don't i don't want to say it's depressing because it's not really depressing but it's like a wake-up call it's like okay mm -hmm. it's it's good and it's bad in a way because well, yeah it depends on how you look right at it, on, on, sure. on one end of things yeah we we don't have all the answers everything's up for interpretation let's let's get this moving and then on the other hand we'll really never know what life's about and if this is it and we're just here mm -hmm. for this fleeting moment or whatever um you do have to enjoy it so that's where the ignorance is bliss would come into play where you would want to live more like that if that is the case so it's this catch-22 yeah. damned if i do damned if i don't um i'm still going to mm -hmm. continue down this path i just feel like it's going to lead me somewhere some even if it's only for a moment uh of enlightenment then it's, but a lot it's of people just it. accept uh a lot mm -hmm. of people accept evolution in the same regards where there's this is what we were taught in school therefore evolution is real and sure. mm -hmm. that's that's what i'm believing now and they don't want to go to the next step and mm -hmm. you know uncover the it. stone if you will yeah because mm. yeah, there's a big difference in there that you know a lot look we all run i think humans are um, almost religious by default and we are faith-based by default because that you know, we we tend to make a religion out of things like uh, my dad is an atheist right he is one of the most atheist atheists <laughs> you'll meet right so i would say he was he was an atheist zealot who was an evangelical atheist like he would go into the church you know probably and tell the vicar you shouldn't be an atheist you know, so you should be an atheist, you know, why do you believe God? He's that kind of person, you know, if the if people knock on the door and they want to spread the word, then, well, they're going to they're gonna have to have the word of atheism back at them, right? Right. So he, he, in his own way, I would say, has made a religion of atheism, right? So it functions yeah. for him in the way that a religion would function for somebody else. Now, also, other people have religions about really obscure things, really strange things. That, again, are not spiritual in nature, but their behavior is religious behavior about them, right? And that we can absorb them, like, um, evolution and not necessarily understand it at all but then go and say right obviously evolution is real you know we know it is and make a kind of a belief of it a strong faith belief but then if questioned have no information right to share with somebody right but have an absolutely strong conviction and day-to-day -day life we work on faith you know i have faith 
the engineers have correctly built the bridge I drive over. I have no idea. I wasn't there. I didn't see them do it. I don't know when it was last safety checked, but I, I have to function on faith all the time. I function that other people knew what the hell they're doing, even though I also know, well, a lot of the time they don't or that they're corrupt and they cut corners. But yeah, I ha you have to function on faith. If I went and analyzed every situation I go into, but you, you wouldn't get far in your day, right? Because right. You, you'd have to think, well, I don't actually know if that's true. You know, is my car really safe to drive? <laughs> I better take it all apart, check all the different parts today in case that, you know, there's some sparks going to blow me up when I start the engine. You know, we, we can't function like that. So I think, you know, we are a kind of a faith-based animal who also has a lot of religious thinking about stuff. But I don't know that we can rechange that. I don't know if it's a bad thing. Because I think it makes life function. But I think we should know that we have that tendency and be honest about it. Right. So, yeah, you know, I don't scrutinize every single thing that comes up. Yeah. But sometimes I just say, mm -hmm, yeah, that sounds right. right. And I'll just incorporate it into my belief system. Well, other times you, you'll check really carefully. We're ingrained with cognitive bias, um, confirmation bias, uh, a lot of people suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect. There's lots mm. of these things that plague us because we're just learning more about our own minds through people that have uh, you know, mental issues or people that um, they're doing more research into the brain now, what consciousness mm -hmm. po possibly is, so they're finding out more things. Um, and through that, we're starting to learn that, oh, we are more fallible than we thought we were. However, mm -hmm. again, it's it just comes down to this old thing where it's people mm -hmm. just accepting what they're taught and moving on because it's not that important, when in reality... We're living, breathing magic. Why aren't more people? This is what pisses me off about this is that why aren't there more people? Is it something that is a, a no win, endless kind of a, a marathon of, um, of a path? Or is it just that these people just don't care or whatever the case may be? I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to think about it because I, 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 try, yeah. I try and think about it the way I thought about it before I started getting into all this stuff. And I get it because you get so consumed with like material things and your surroundings and your day to day, um, uh, you know, waking up, going to work, watching the same show, eating the same things. And you mm -hmm. just get caught up mm -hmm. in that. And it becomes a cycle. Um, but, yeah, again, it's just uh, one of these things where uh, we may never have the answers. But I do want to talk about mm -hmm. before we start wrapping it up here. I think that your. um your beliefs al align with mine in terms of the UFO stuff in some regards. I know you believe in nuts and bolts stuff. I'm open to the possibility of nuts and bolts stuff. I do think that consciousness is at the center of this phenomena, uh, whether it's us interpreting this data. Um, and I mentioned it many times. I don't think it's the same thing when people try and t pull out a smartphone or a camera and they take a picture of what they believe is a UFO. That's why there's not really great pictures of it because I think it's not taking into account that we're human beings. So if like a real sighting happens um, and somebody sees it and they don't get a picture, uh, they're not going to be believed. But in reality, it's their senses. You know, it's our five senses. It's the way our brain interprets things. It's the way our eyes take in the photons and process it through our brains. If there is something weird there or something higher than us that's manipulating us or whatever the case may be, um, that's that would be what I would think the explanation would be for that kind of a situation. Mm -hmm. Also, we have an issue because, you know, look, people say, look, there's so many cell phones now that, you know, everyone's got a camera in their pocket. Why don't we have more pictures? But, but then again, I mean, there's an awful lot of YouTube videos and pictures of these things. But the problem we have is that, yes, you have a camera in your pocket, but those those cameras are not really designed for high altitude objects that mm -hmm. are glowing. 
And that, well, what you end up with is a grainy blob of light. And right? CGI. Yeah, everybody's get... tried to take a, yeah. take a picture of the moon. I love that one meme. It's yeah. what I see and then what my camera picture looks camera like. Is. It's a yeah. little turd up in the corner there. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, we're not really quite there with the um, the zoom on most of these phones, to be honest. So, I mean, it's yeah, yeah even if you do get the picture, it's even going to be a grainy blob. Or in a few cases where it looks really sharp, people say, oh, there's obviously CGI. I don't believe you. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. That's so right. If it's too good, it's CGI. If it's too blurry, you know, it's useless. So, so what do you do? I mean, and, and also, if something really exciting happens to you, and I know this myself, that usually the default thing you think is like, wow, wow, you're just staring <laughs> at it. You know, you don't necessarily think, oh, I better get on my camera, set it on the right night mode, put it on to free time zoom, and right. you know, oh, it's flown away. You know, like really, you're probably going to be intensely looking at the object, unless you're a photographer. Or someone who has that as a default, right? Who's used to taking a lot, like you're obviously if you're a professional photographer, so you, you might well think, yeah, I would, you know, because you're so used to get my camera out, take a photo. But for average person, you probably think, oh my god, what's that? You know, and they're staring, yeah. and at the end they think, oh my god, I should have took a photo, you know. So we, well, we, we have we have things. UFO, we have the UFO stuff from like from the government, and everybody still poo-poo's on that, but there yeah, is the hard yeah, evidence to there. see, so. Yeah, yeah, the so go fast, the gimbal, and Those the high tic-tac. altitude videos, right? With right. the plane up there taking it, it's still considered too grainy. So my iPhone, <laughs> down level, is not going to cut it. It's not going to bring that next level evidence. You know, right. so I think it's unreasonable when the skeptics say that. Say, so, you know, all these cameras, we should have, you know, absolute smoking gun. It's like, well, no, because even from, you know, from an airplane taking the video, it's not considered enough by them. Mm-hmm. Well, even, is do you think it's that our technology is catching up to whatever this is or because look there and i'm not going to say there is a realistic possibility that those could be our technology of some private military uh company yeah, we have to be open to that. I, i'm open to it i'm not saying that i believe mm-hmm. that's the probable situation but i think that you do have to entertain that so is it this oh if that's the case there will always be this like buffer of what they have and what we're able to detect so there could be that aspect of it and again i i think to to toss around these ideas you also have to toss around the other side of it and and mm-hmm. kind of look at it from like a non-biased uh, point of view but mm-hmm. when you're let's say they are otherworldly do you think it's possible that we would ever ca- catch up and that's maybe why we do have those videos is that that FLIR system and our just ability to maybe catch whatever it is now as opposed to what people have been seeing for a long time Yes, I know. I, I, I suspect, you know, from, you know, for a few reasons, but I suspect that the intelligence involved behind some of these, well, the majority of the truly anomalous aerial, you know, phenomena, aerial craft, if they're craft, you know, it seems to like to keep it always just beyond where you can have conclusive evidence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a deliberate, you know, a, I don't think they're tactic, but a, a deliberate or conscious part of it, that, that you're not supposed to ever get that easy proof, like, you know, the alien lands and the CNN crew turns up, they've got the video and it's case closed. Mm-hmm. It seems like that is not wanted for some reason. But there's always just almost, you know, you've almost got the proof. You know, we've almost got enough. So I suspect that the, again, if that whether that's the consciousness element of it, that, you know, if there's a feedback loop with this phenomena that, you know, in a psychical contact between humans and whatever else is out there, that it's aware, you know, of us in more of a way than we're aware of it, perhaps. And then it reacts in a way that keeps us always coming along like the carrot in front of the donkey, right. but, but not wiping out to eat it. 
So although we seem to be getting better video, I don't know whether that's going to get to a point where we have something absolute. It does seem that we're getting closer and that certainly now we've got something that is enough to make some of the skeptics, you know, stop and think for once. Um, but again, like you said, that could be it could turn out to be a human technology, which then would would mean that the phenomenon was no closer at all to us having that, mm -hmm. you know, that that great photo. Because <laughs> if it turns out that, right. that what we have right. is yeah, like a next level, you know, human tech, then what's the next best thing of of uh, an aerial anomaly? You know, back to the blurry videos and right. those right. pictures that people say are Photoshop. You know, so so we don't really have a next best, do we, on that? So. It, a lot's being riding on you know those few videos so we'll have to see with that but i don't know i think that look if if this i don't know if you say phenomena but look if there's if there's angels if there's aliens if there's something else there that's conscious if it wanted just to have a clear photo of it it would right it would just let us do that if it wanted to just land somewhere and you know have a cnn crew there it would do that so that i think there must be some level of obfuscation um, now, whether that's for our own good or whether it's for its good, you know, again, it's not clear. Maybe it's not a good idea for us. Maybe it's a, it seems a really damaging thing to have that happen, right? Yeah. Because we, we assume yeah. that this is a good thing, but we don't know. We don't know that that's a good thing to happen. It certainly would derail the civilization's course, you know. And indeed, any any contact with, say, like a, an interdimensional phenomena, uh, aliens, anything like that. In fact, angels, if they are indeed a, a real thing, interdimensional phenomena, obviously they've changed our our world because we have all these religions that talk about angels and they've made war on each other and stuff. So we know that contact with anomalous phenomena can have major, major effects on human beings. And, that can, and some of those are really destabilizing, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> really problematic. So... I mean, as much as we can get excited about it, and people say we're ready for, you know, we're ready, Space Brothers land. Like, it's not clear that the general population of 7 billion people is in any way ready for the, the high weirdness that would come with contact with something truly alien. Yeah, you know, whether... I mean, isn't, I mean that, isn't that the point of To the Stars Academy, too, is just to kind of acclimate people to the idea of this kind of a thing? Um, so mm -hmm. I guess it comes back to, so your point being that if it is a real phenomenon and it's not us, that maybe it is just out of our grasp, like you said, dangling a carrot. We have been as a, um, since ancient Egypt, ancient uh, Akkadia, Sumer, that we are interested in the mysteries and that we are going to follow these mysteries, at least some of us. Um, and, mm -hmm. I could see that as being the case. Like it's just leading us down. Mm. Maybe that's what leads us to where we're going to end up or whatever the case may be. But again, there's mm. the other side where it could be engineered that way by our, by our people, you know, that are higher up than, than most that are constantly projecting this they, thing which, out there, you know, which would make sense too. That. Yeah. And also the, the fact that we know there's a, that they, they've utilized the UFO phenomena to cover up, military craft so I mean, there's an intrinsic link between the two and obviously there's a lot of claims of military abductions that replicate the experience of alien abductions that, right. you know they've used that for like psychological warfare you know people being dragged out of the night got gone through what seems to be an alien abduction because <laughs> to be honest we know governments and military 
uh, carried out some horrendously weird experiments on people. Right. Like, yeah. Horrendously weird. Right. So you know, people say, you know, why would my government do that? It's like you only need to look through the annals of history to see the kind of things people do when they have absolute power to do whatever they want to you. I mean, look, look at the Nazis. Look at the stuff they were doing. Pressure testing on people's heads, seeing how cold you could go. You know, anything. Once you say, just test whatever you like. Like you will find maniacs. People do all sorts of weird experiments. Yeah, dragging you out in the night and, and putting you in a flying saucer. Yeah, that's tame, right? right compared to some of the high <laughs> weirdness that military scientists have done. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So we, so we know that we can't. We can't just say that that doesn't happen to people. We know that there's, it's not unreasonable to think that our governments and our military would do some very strange things. Oh, not to like, mention that it, a lot of those scientists you were just talking about, we actually took during Project Paperclip and yeah, yeah intertwined them into our own stuff. So. Absolutely. So we have you know, the the information coming from them, their beliefs, their thinking transferred onto U.S. scientists. So it wouldn't just be the Nazi scientists. They say, well, you know, when we were in Germany, we would think like this. And so you, think, yeah. mm, you know, so you have people picking up that kind of thinking and infecting the scientific community in the U.S. in the military, in the military. Right. Right. So then you have this idea of, well, you know, maybe if we just abduct a few people quietly. We can run some of these experiments on them. Who would know? You know, people disappear all the time. And like, the, the idea that that never happens, I think would, I think people would struggle to believe that. You'd have to be really um, in love with your government and the military-industrial complex to believe that they don't do anything horrific to people and that they're not still sometimes willing to go beyond, right, and do weird, weird sure. stuff to people. So, I mean, microwave weapons, all this stuff, you know, making people feel they're mentally ill. We know they want to do voices that enter your head. They've tried to bring that into warfare, the idea that they can have God talking to the enemy. Uh, all of these things are real world stuff that they've banded around, you know, to, the ability to go between religious phenomena um, and the mundane, you know, that again, it's a crossover in, in the military that they like the idea of incorporating, you know, religious thinking and religious phenomena, you know, into warfare so again that's kind of weird the idea of craft that could be mistaken as angels and so again mm -hmm. these are things that that do fit into the mo of some of these people so it's very hard to absolutely filter out the possibilities of you know what human scientists would do deliberately to take advantage of some of our religious thinking and our beliefs in aliens and you know all the rest of it now that doesn't negate that the existence of other entities because we know going back to the you know, the Neolithic, people have claimed to be in contact with spirits, you know, mm -hmm. that they, there's things they've seen in the sky, phenomena and whatnot. So, yes, there, there's certainly phenomena that humans experience. Um, and so we, we can't say that it's all proved by modern science because that's, that's not the case. We can't say that right. all of this has come about, you know, in modern times because it hasn't. But, yes, yeah, certainly it's, the waters are muddier now that we have the science that can replicate a lot of the phenomena that people were already seeing. You know, but, but what is that original phenomena? Of course, the question remains. Uh, we know that with the shamanic cultures and with, you know, if you use ritual, dance or shamanic plants, that often the shaman encounter beings that are identical to those that people say they have in alien encounters, mm -hmm. whether greys, reptilians, uh, these um, uh, the tall Nordic types and, you know, identical. You find these in artwork, you know, given to us by shamanic practitioners in the amazon using ayahuasca who've painted their visions and you find that you know they're seeing flying saucers they're seeing mermaids they're seeing you know all these things that you know again 
are pouring out in those psychic realms. And yet someone else would say, well, I saw a ship physically land nuts and bolts and, you know, out came a reptilian. And so it's like, well, weirdly enough, so did the shaman when he was drinking his ayahuasca. He saw the yeah. same thing and he experienced that as real and as physical in his vision. It was just as real. So, I mean, there's a, there's a crossover in there. And, you know, and obviously the unifying factor is is human perception, right? That, you know, that we are the perceiver of the phenomena. Right. Now, whether, whether we're drinking ayahuasca brew or whether... It was in is what we call a normal state. And we have problems with that normal state because I, I suspect there is something like a um, like an additional state somewhere between lucid dreaming and normal consciousness in which we perceive this phenomena, like these strange aerial anomalies or angels or beings. There's somewhere between because the brain state of lucid dreaming is very close to normal waking consciousness. If you if you're scan you're imaging someone's brain, right? They're, they're very close, you know, so it's difficult to tell the difference between whether they're in reality or not. Now, let's say there's a state that's just in between those two, right, where you won't know that you've even slipped into it, but where you end up with a kind of augmented reality where you're you're seeing kind of almost like what we'd think of as otherworldly or dream phenomena superimposed into your normal waking environment in a way that makes them objective and that you may not be the only one seeing it, that two or three of you are seeing it. And sometimes the other four, five, six, you know, they're not seeing it. Mm -hmm. We have that in UFO encounters where people said, yeah, well, we, we all saw it, but you know, Bob and Jim, they didn't see it. They couldn't see it right in front of us. Like, so that again is, is an odd factor, right? And so I, I think that there is something to do with another state here that is, is somewhere in between that allows us to perceive them. Now, does that mean we're generating this content? Not necessarily. It may be something that's just outside of visible light, right? And that in that state, we're able to perceive it. You know, or it's, there's a huge range of frequencies we can't normally see. We all know that, that, you know, we are functionally blind, as, as some scientists put it, that, you know, there's such a wide range of sonic and auditory mm -hmm. and sensual experiences that we don't normally perceive as humans versus other animals or versus machines, right? That we are functionally blind. And that there can be all sorts of, things around us that we're not seeing, including beings, right? And that if you were able to expand your perception, that you could see those beings. Now, we know that using ayahuasca and whatnot expands your awareness. In fact, the whole brain goes into a unified functioning, you know, a kind of activity that's not seen in any other states. And people start to see collective visionary experiences where, you know, multiple people in a group say they see beings standing at the edge of the circle, the same beings, right? So right. objective right. phenomena. Now, that's, that's a kind of a problem if these are totally self-generated hallucinations. Why are multiple people seeing the same phenomena, right? It right. sounds more like your perception has expanded to see things that were already there. Yeah, I mean, personally, um, I have never, I'm trying to think, I've never, I've had a weird synchronicities, coincidences and stuff like that happen, uh, normal day-to-day -day mm -hmm. consciousness. But yeah, I've never seen, I mean, we go up north camping in Michigan and you can see satellites and you can see all sorts of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I've never in normal day-to-day -day consciousness seen anything of that nature, if that makes sense. Mm. Not UFO, yeah. not, and I'm not saying that people don't, I'm just saying personally I haven't. However, yeah. during mm. psychedelic experiences, during lucid dreaming, during meditation, these altered mm -hmm. states, I have experienced some of these things. So I yeah. do think that there's something to that. And I'm also open to the idea that these could just be archetypal things ingrained in us that come out when we take the focus off of whatever the case may be. And it's part of just um, 
who we are. I'm open to mm-hmm. that. I don't think that's the case because there's interaction there, but that's what my thought on it uh, uh, is of that. But when people say, yeah, mm-hmm. like you said, nuts and bolts and this, this alien came out and well, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Me personally, even though I believe in the mm-hmm. metaphysical and I'm open to these mm-hmm. ideas, I usually pass on that kind of stuff only because mm-hmm. it's just, like I said, I've, it's not because I haven't experienced it that I don't believe it is exists. It's just that uh, I don't know how to explain it, but just that I feel like I'm, I discern um, some experiences from others based on mm-hmm. credibility of the person, other things that they mm-hmm. say and different things of that nature. But again, I'm, I'm open-minded and I'm open to, mm-hmm. I like listening to people's stories. Some of them are a lot crazier mm-hmm. than others, but at the end of sure. the day, it is what it is, but uh, well, that stuff that Tom Lane was talking about when the sacred mushroom, everybody sees Quetzalcoatl, or they yeah. reported seeing a lot of the same things when they do this ritual. Yeah. That's yeah, right the, up that the sacred much uh, mushroom rituals of the, yeah. the Toltecs it, and all it that. It favors stuff. the idea that there's something that is already there that we can see, because yeah, that tendency to see repeating phenomena. It goes slightly in the favor of that argument. Now, yeah, you could argue, is it something just because all humans have a similar neurology, you know, that our neurological systems are similar? I know that's the counter argument or there is some kind of, you know, a shared subconscious or something. But I don't know. I mean, that that is certainly a viable argument. I'd say that on the whole, if you're going to just take it down the line and say, what's the more likely of the two? I think I would have to say that it's more likely there's something already there of some sort, whatever mm. it is, whether it's fifth dimensional, you know, and that we just see it in how we see it, which is a point there is that um, a, fifth, a fifth dimensional object, we would render it as best as we could. We would not be able to see what it looked like. Right. right? That's, that's understood that, you know, our perception is for four, four dimensional, you know, during time, four dimensional objects, five dimensional objects we would struggle with, right? So we would render it as best as we could. Now, is it that we start to see five dimensional objects in those states and that, you know, they don't always look identical, but they're similar enough because the brain attempts to render them as best as it can. And so you end up with very similar phenomena, right? right? Now, I tend towards that, but I do accept that the counter argument is maybe it's just something about human beings and that when we're in these states that we we produce similar internal imagery because we have a similar internal you know makeup. Um, and I guess that that really comes down to a personal preference of what people think is more reasonable. It's not neither is is solid, you know, and say that's the answer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it definitely you say hi, strangeness. All this stuff is very strange uh, in nature, mm-hmm. and that's why we're talking about it pretty much. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, his, with the year, I'll just really say, you know, obviously now we're at a point where people are talking about debris, and there's um, evidence from materials, yeah, metamaterials, and such. So that's the kind of thing, of course, where you know, uh, skeptics. Or people that just you're on the fence, whatever, you know, can say, well, look, okay, well, that's something that we can get, you know, our teeth into, um, that, you know, this material can be tested. uh, And obviously that's happening. There's a number of groups at the moment that are testing materials I'm aware of. Um, I think over the next year, we're probably going to see results coming in. I mean, there have been tests in the past, you know, and some of those have come up as being, you know, anomalous alloys. Now, of course, now technology has moved on and we can look to see what those alloys are used for. We can see whether or not they were constructed in, well, not an Earth environment. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's greater levels of detail that can be extracted and that is underway. And so obviously if some of these are, 
whether physical or, or I guess metaphysical that become physical objects and they're leaving debris, then that really takes it into being as objectively real as, you know, my wall and me, right. you know, so whatever now, how real those are, we go into esoteric topics, obviously. And, you know, am I real? Are you real? Is any of this happening in an objective way? Right. Well, we struggle to prove that, but you know, if we, if we go with that and we say the human experience, we take it as being real. We take it as being, there's a fundamental physical reality. Um, even though we know, um, that it's not, you know, not point, not, 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 not percent empty space right. in the atom. Uh, and all the rest of that, that if we just allow that we'd have to say that materials that are in a lab being tested are as, as, as real as anything else and therefore if they fell from a craft that craft has to be counted as real um, and then we have to start dealing with who's flying in that craft and all the rest of that um, and that it does look like it's where it's going now obviously that's kind of my position with my book as well. I said, look, you know, this physical debris that I associate with a alien techno signature. Now what I need is scientists to then come along and say, Oh, okay, well let's have a look at that and see whether that narrative fits the evidence and whether we can do further testing to validate it. And that, that's the same thing with, with these um, pieces of debris is that they now need people to come along and validate it. You know, and that I think that's going to happen over the next year or so. So mm. whether my work or someone else's work, I think, you know, we are going to get some, you know, papers, stuff coming out that deal with these matters. Sure. Well, uh, let's wrap it up here. Would you be interested in doing an extra like five or ten minutes for our Patreon people? We can get off here and sure. jump on that. For I just want to ask you a couple more mm -hmm. questions, possibly what the strangest thing that's ever happened to you is. And uh, people sure. can check that mm -hmm. out on our Patreon if they're interested. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, But let's plug all the stuff here. Um, you can uh, check us out at... Uh, patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive uh, access to, you know, interviews and content stuff that we didn't put on our um, YouTube page and uh, juicy tidbits podcast stuff. You can visit our website at Mike and Maurice mind escape.com. And of course, throughout the whole episode, you'll have seen our social media uh, links at the bottom of the video. Uh, so check out, I'm going to put the links after we get off uh, live here and put the links to Bruce's website, uh, Bruce's uh, books, Into Africa, um, and uh, Human Hybrids, and Exogenesis, which is his new one. When's the Exogenesis coming out? Um, that's coming out the 1st of June. Okay. Nice. And uh, is that one going to be more on the side of the human hybrid thing, maybe like a part two of that? Yeah, it's, it's a kind of look, taking that study again with more evidence, you know, expanding it um, and really deep diving it. And then that's going through the professional editing process and being published with a publisher. The other one was self-published. And I admit that, you know, it could have done with tidying up and whatnot. So so this will be a polished book. Um, and a lot, quite a lot longer with new evidence and all the rest of it and some other topics discussed like TTSA and their work I talk a bit about and some of the abduction material um, from, you know, people like Jacobs and Mac and that, you know, I talk a little bit about that. So I do, I do de delve into some other topics that I feel are relevant, uh, even the climate emergency, you know, and how that may relate to um, aliens. So they'll find that, yeah, it's quite a lot more to it this time, um, particularly in the genetics. You know, I, I supply more evidence in the, um, the genetic engineering argument. Okay. And what's, Very good, sir. What's your website so people can check it out? Um, hybridhumans.net, brucefenton.info, and ancientnews.net are probably my main ones. And on Twitter, they can find me there as well, which um, they look for uh, exogenesis. 
I think it's Exogenesis HH, actually, my full handle. I'm pretty sure. I'm most active on there. I'm pretty sure that's it. And uh, yeah, yeah, Bruce is very active on there as well as we are. And uh, it's a nice little community of UFO Twitter and ancient civilization stuff and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. So uh, check that out. And uh, thanks again, Bruce. And we'll definitely have you back on in the future. This is fascinating as well. I think this is a a little bit shorter. You were still the longest episode we've ever done. The first one was almost three hours, I believe. So Lots of information to get out there. If you guys haven't checked that one out, that one's more about like evolution and and that kind of stuff. So if you're interested in that, check out that episode. And uh, thanks again for coming on. And we'll hop on the Patreon here and uh you have a good day cheers Thanks for having me on. cheers, cheers.